Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members don't have all the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all of the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do so diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil, and be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't become e- overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we engage with this word, we pray that uh, you'll fill our minds with understanding and our hearts with your love. In you we pray. Amen. Well, we're getting toward the end of our teaching series here, this sermon uh, sermon summer sermon series on the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the first century church in the city of Rome. And you can catch up on this series if you haven't been following along by going to avonhope.org where you find audio podcasts. You also find video versions of those sermons. And you can go back and again catch up on everything that you may have missed if you missed anything. We have a couple of guests coming over the next couple of weeks. And uh, so we will be a little bit off topic, but I promise you that by the end of the month, by the end of August, we will have completed the, this letter, this letter to the Romans. 
Uh, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? That's the question or part one of the questions that we uh, find Paul wrestling with when we turn our attention here to uh, Romans chapter 12. Paul is appealing to this newborn church by uh, clarifying that true uh, worship is rooted in the relationship that we as followers of Jesus have with each other and with God that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. The imagery here is, of course, the ancient Israelite sacrificial and worship service uh, mentioned many times in the Old Testament of sacrificial animals being given to God. And now Paul is saying uh, those who profess to be followers of Jesus to, are to offer ourselves, our own bodies, as living sacrifices to God, but also to the community at large, that there is... This thing that is rooted in being in community uh, together. That worship is not just coming together on a Sabbath morning for an hour or two. Um, It's not about an event. It's not about um, a place. But it's about existing and living in community that you're willing to give yourself to as living sacrifices. Following Jesus isn't about an intellectual ascent to a series of doctrinal statements, but rather it's about living in healthy community with God and with each other. This realization, as you may know if you've been around here, led uh, Advent Hope to kind of reevaluate our own purpose and, and mission and values, and so we defined our, our purpose as a community of faith uh, around this idea in Romans chapter 12, and we identified it by in, in these words, that we... Our purpose at Avonhoe desire to live in loving, worshipful relationship with God and in loving community with one another, empowered by the Holy Spirit to participate in God's reconciling and restorative work through Jesus Christ of healing broken relationships between God and all people and between all members of the human family. That we as a community of faith want to exist in fellowship with each other and healthy relationship with each other. And this is what Paul is articulating in Romans chapter 12, that we are designed to live in community with each other. We're supposed to live in loving community where we take care of each other and we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Uh, in verse 5, Paul uses a metaphor that he uses in other places as well as he's writing to other churches, that the church is like a body. And each body, just like each body has uh, different parts that function together for the the good of the whole, that the church also functions like this, that each of us have been given gifts and skills and talents, and as we well, work together to be in, live in community, that we use these talents for the greater good. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. Some of us, it's prophesying or serving or teaching or giving or leading or encouraging, and that we use these gifts to join together as, um, as a body. With that said, Paul then follows this up by articulating particular things that we all share. So each of us has particular skills and talents and things that God has given us that we use together to, to function uh, in our unique ways in the larger body. But then there's kind of a mandated uh, set of things that all followers of Jesus are to have. And he turns to this explanation in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. These are common elements, common practices that everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus are designed to to have or practice. Hate what is evil, 
cling to what is good. This is, these are baseline things that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus or to be a part of your experience. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. These things aren't just for you know, certain people to have. This is across the boards. If you're a follower of Jesus, these are elements that you're supposed to experience, the things to practice. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge and don't be overcome, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Depending on how you divide this list up, there are like 19 instructions here. And of course, there are other places in the New Testament in which there are other elements that are added to a list like this, but here we have about 19 instructions that Paul is saying are just a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So each of you have your particular skill and talent, but these things we are all designed to share in. It's a pretty comprehensive list. But as you read through this list, I would imagine that you see the same problem that I see. These are challenging uh, practices and uh, affirming Christian teaching does not magically uh, make these things easier for us to actually put into practice, right? So just asserting that, hey, I believe in, in, uh, in, in Christian doctrine does not make these things uh, innately easier for us. In fact, some of these instructions seem to be particularly challenging for Christians, ironically, so Paul is saying, like, these are the baseline for to being a follower of Jesus. You, these are things that we should all embrace and, and practice. But the reality is some of these things are particularly difficult for Christians. I mean, think about being devoted to one another in love. It sounds fantastic, but watch what happens when someone in a community of faith has a, mor- a moral failure of some sort. I mean, suddenly everybody starts getting very sketchy about that person. Uh, people start getting very judgy, you know? Someone does something that doesn't, uh, that seems a little bit uh, morally off in the community. Those people oftentimes can be uh, treated less than lo- lovingly, and, let, and yet the, the command here is to be devoted to one another in love. I mean, devoted is quite a word. Being devoted means you don't give up on someone just because they have some kind of uh, moral failure. And so, um, sadly, sadly, Christian communities are known for shunning people who have moral failures. And yet the command is to be devoted to one another in love. Think about the, the practice of being joyful and hope. Man, I wish I could tell you, and I mean, thank God here at Advent Hope that there's a, there's, there's, there's a good spirit of joy, but I mean, I've been around church along long enough and I would imagine if you've been around church too you know that sometimes Christians are the least joyful people on the planet right I mean you go to, to Christian communities and everybody seems bummed out be joyful in hope that's the that's the the command that's the practice that Christians are to be able to be joyful people but joyful in hope even when things aren't going our way be joyful in hope and yet too often Followers of Jesus are the most depressing people that you'll ever meet. 
I mean, sometimes we even like kind of sanctify being uh, being uh, unjoyful. I mean, the, if you're joyful, you're clearly something is wrong with you. You're not spiritual enough. It's the, it's the it's the people who aren't joyful have no joy. They're very spiritual. Be joyful in hope, Paul says. Finally, live in harmony with one another. Wouldn't it be great if every community of believers just lived in absolute harmony with each other? Uh, but the reality is, oftentimes, the church is the place where you'll find the most conflict, right? Live in harmony with one another. And so this list of instructions is, is, is fabulous. Um, in fact, it's, it's so good that you can make the case that almost anyone who read this list would say, you know, these are good practices. People should, whether, whether you're a follower of Jesus or, or, or not, if, whether you're a, a religious person or not, this list sounds incredible. And yet, in practice, we have an incredibly difficult time implementing these instructions. And so, that leaves us with the question, what is wrong with us? I mean, it's a great list of instructions, but why do we have such a difficult time implementing them, even though we have, many of us have affirmed uh, Christian faith, we've affirmed to a set of doctrine. Why do Christians still struggle implementing these uh, practices? Well, that question made me think about a uh, book I read recently by Kelly McGonigal. The book is titled The Willpower Instinct, How Self-Control Works, why it matters, and what you can do to get more. Uh, Kelly McGonigal is a health psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University. Has anyone read this book? So I'm a, you, you may know by now that I'm a big fan of the subject and theme of a willpower in science, and uh, Roy Bymeister's work that was expressed in the book actually titled Willpower, which McGonigal is an expert on. She and, and Ballmeister, she's an expert on Ballmeister's research. Uh, so many interesting things in, is ha- are, are happening in this, uh, this field of study, and McGonagall is at the top of the list of people who are investigating how willpower actually uh, works. And so in, in this book, in her chapter titled From Saints to Sinners, McGonagall helps us to understand a little bit about what is going on. What is our problem when it comes to a beautiful list like this, but yet as humans being incapable of actually doing and and abiding and practicing these really, really positive uh, practices. I have a bunch of quotes here, so I'm going to jump through and you tell me what is most helpful or not. Let's start with this one. This is a provocative one. Uh, So McGonagall starts by describing a study uh, done by psychologists among undergrad students at Princeton University. Any Princeton grads here? I know we have one or two in the community. Um, They're not here today. They're at Princeton. so psychologists went to Princeton University and they, they did this study among uh, Princeton undergrad uh, students. And so they were asked to rate, the students were asked to rate on a scale of, from strongly disagree to strongly agree, uh, agree, two sets of questions. Okay, so there's two sets of questions. Are you ready for these provocative questions? Here we go. Most women are not really smart. So the, stu- the undergrad students were asked by the psychologist to rate the efficacy of these questions. Most women are not really smart. And the, and the second question, most women are better suited to stay at home taking care of the children than to work. All right, so that was set of question number one. 
Here's the, set, the second set of questions they ask. Some women are not really smart, and some women are better suited to stay at home taking care of the children. If not, are uh, better to take it at home and take care of the children. So those are the two sets of questions. Okay, you got it? So, so all women and, and some women. Now, this is what McGonagall writes. These surveys were part of a study by psychologists Benoit Menin and Dale Miller who were investigating stereotypes and decision-making. As you might predict, Princeton students who were asked to rate the first two statements were quick to denounce them. But students were, uh, who were asked to rate the qualified some women statements were more uh, neutral on the matter. After rating the statements, the students were then asked to make a decision in a hypothetical hiring situation. So they were presented with these two sets of questions, right? And then separately and, and later, but, but at the same, same time, but, but, but distinctly afterwards, they then were put in this scenario where they were going to determine hiring practices. And so their assignment was to assess the suitability of several candidates, male and female, for a high-level job stereotypically male, in a stereotypically male-dominated industry like construction or finance. Uh, this seems like a straightforward task, she writes, especially for the students who had just rejected the sexist statements. Surely they would not discriminate against a qualified woman. But the Princeton researchers found exactly the opposite to be true. The students who had strongly disagreed with the obviously sexist statements were more likely to favor a man for the job than the students who had somewhat reluctantly agreed with the less sexist some women statements. The same pattern emerged when the researchers asked students about racist attitudes and then gave them the opportunity to discriminate against racial minorities. These studies shocked a lot of people. Psychologists had long assumed that once you expressed an attitude, you would be likely to act in line with that expression. I mean, who wants to be a hypocrite, McGonagall asks. But the Princeton psychologists had uncovered the exception to our usual desire to be consistent. When it comes to right and wrong, most of us are not striving for moral perfection. We just want to feel good enough, which then gives us permission to do whatever we want. The students had rejected obviously sexist or racist statements and then felt that they had established their moral credentials. They had proven to themselves that they were not sexist or racist, but this left them vulnerable to what psychologists call moral licensing. Do we have any psychologists here today? We have some in, in Advent Hope's community, but maybe they're not here today. Psychologists call this moral licensing. When you do something good, you feel good about yourself. This means you're more likely to trust your impulses, which often means giving yourself permission to do something bad. See? So basically, the, the students had kind of trick themselves if you'd fallen into the trap of thinking, well, I'm, I'm a good person. I make good decisions. Look how I resisted those sexist and racist questions. But when it came down to the practice of actually implementing their plan, didn't work. They were inconsistent. They felt good and felt able to trust themselves, but when practice, it didn't, didn't really work out. 
She says, we want permissions to do whatever we want. Affirming a good position gave them permission to do whatever they wanted. They said something good, and this made them feel confident, and yet they really fell back in the old stereotypes. She goes on, another illustration, the Snackwell's cookie craze back in 1992. Do you remember Snackwell's cookies? Do those exist anymore? Can you still buy a Snackwell's cookie? Well, back in 19, remember back in the 1990s? For those of you who remember the 1990s, I remember the 1990s. <laughs> Not all of you do. You got go, you remember the 1990s. Remember what was the, the public enemy number one when it came to nutrition? Fat. It says, fat makes you fat. That's what everybody thought. Fat, fat's the problem. Fat makes you fat. So Snackwells and their marketing department said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make a no-fat cookie, low-fat cookie. And so they, the, the, one of the first to plaster no, low fat on their cookies. And you know what people did? This is amazing. The cookies are low fat. What they didn't advertise is the cookies were full of sugar. Full of sugar. And so people ate these cookies by the box because they were low fat. What is it going to be great? People watching their weight, McDonald's says, irrationally consumed whole boxfuls of the high, super, the, the high sugar treats, blinded by the light of the fat-free halo. She goes on to say, uh, recent research suggests that we uh, were mer merely traded old magic words for new ones. And we think, those, you know, what's wrong with those dumb people back in the 1990s? I mean, come on. Uh, Oreo cookies labeled organic are judged by many to have fewer calories and therefore be better for us. And so when we see organic, that means, well, it must be fantastic for us. And so we fall for these same tricks. We keep tricking ourselves over and over and over and over and over again. And so our, our judgment is off. This is, this is what McGonnell was getting at. Like, we, 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 we're off. We don't know what we should do, or we know what we should do, but we actually do the opposite of what we should do. Remember, uh, Jael preached on this in Romans chapter 7 back a couple weeks ago. Again, you can go to adventhope.org and catch up on that sermon where the Apostle Paul is like, I don't get it. I want to do something, and I do the op very opposite of what I want to do. McGonagall says, we say that we believe in one thing, but then when it really comes down to the practice, we do the exact opposite. You see what's going on here? Something is broken. I mean, psychologists are recognized. Something is broken in, the, in, our, in, our, in our humanity and who we are. We, are, we, are, we don't do the things that we want to do. This is a particularly a problem if we moralize everything, which is a, a real tendency in the church. Everything becomes a moral issue, right? Listen, let's be honest. We're in an Adventist community. Adventists, we love to do some moralizing, don't we? <laughs> I mean, you mor we moralize what we eat, what we wear, what we do. Everything is a, is a, a moral issue. McGonagall is, is, is clear. Moralizing actually has its own uh, issue. Anything, she says, anything that you moralize because it's fair game for the effect of moral licensing. If you tell yourself that you are good when you exercise and bad when you don't, then you're more likely to skip the gym tomorrow if you work out today. I was good today. It could be good two days in a row. Got enough goodness. 
tell yourself you're good for working on an important project and bad for procrastinating, you're more likely to slack off in the afternoon if you made progress in the morning. Simply put, whenever we have conflicting desires, being good gives us permission to be a little bit bad. Because we, 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 we have this scale in our minds that we don't even think about as subconscious. And we're like, well, I have had enough goodness, and so I can do a little bit of badness in there. That's, that's moralism. She says, moral judgments are also not nearly as motivating as our culture likes to believe. We idolize our own desire to be virtuous. And many people believe that they are most motivated by guilt and shame. We want to be virtuous, and so we're motivated by guilt and shame. But she says, who are we kidding? We are most motivated by getting what we want and avoiding what we don't want. Isn't that true? I mean, what really motivates you? I mean, you like to think, as Christians, we like to think, well, I'm really motivated to keep the Ten Commandments. It really motivates me. When I get up in the morning, I think, boy, I hope I can really keep the Ten Commandments. Is that, is that what does it for you? Come on. We're most motivated by getting what we want and avoiding what we don't want. God goes right on. She might as well be Paul. I mean, Paul's saying the same thing in Romans 7. We are messed up. And we lie to ourselves and we convince ourselves that we, you know, we want to be one way. When really we're broken. <laughs> Not going to get it together. And we keep trying to figure out ways in which we can make ourselves better and it just doesn't work. When you define a willpower challenge as something you should do to be a better person, McGonagall says, you will automatically start to come up with arguments for why you shouldn't have to do it. It's just human nature. We resist rules imposed by others for our own good. If you try to impose those rules on yourself from a moralizing self-improvement point of view, you're going to hear very quickly from the part of you that doesn't want to be controlled. See, we have something inside of us, McDonald's, that just resists being told what we're supposed to do. Remember, Paul, Paul said, hey, I was, I was, my life was fine, and then I, the, I was approached with the law. It was what I was supposed to do. And all of a sudden, up in me, was this resistance to these good things because we don't like being told what to do, even when they're good for us. This is brokenness. So Paul introduces this list of 19 things that are just flat. Every Christian is supposed to be, have these things where we care for each other and have love for each other. But we'll, and, and we can affirm those things. Those things are fantastic. Christians should do those things. But in practice, in practice, we have an incredibly difficult time actually implementing these things in our own experience. Something is off. Last one. And you can go home and read McGonagall yourself. I love this one. Researchers were intrigued by reports that when McDonald's added healthier items to its menu, sales of Big Macs skyrocketed. Big Macs are not good for you, you understand, right? I mean, newsflash. To find out why, the researchers designed their own fast food menus and set up a mock restaurant. Uh, diners were given a menu and asked to select one item. All the menus had a range of, of the standard fast food fears, such as french fries, chicken nuggets, 
and baked potatoes with everything on it. Half the participants were given a special menu that also included a healthy salad. When the salad was an option, the percentage of participants choosing the least healthy and most fattening item on the menu increased. Put a salad on the item and that inspired people to order the most unhealthy thing. The researchers found that the same effect for uh, the same effect for vending machines when a reduced calorie package of cookies was added to a set of standard junk food options, participants were more likely to choose the least healthy snack. How can this be? Sometimes the mind gets so excited about the opportunity to act on a goal. It mistakes the opportunity with the satisfaction of actually having accomplished the goal. I could get a salad. And our brain was so excited about the fact that we could get a salad and that we even thought about the option to get a salad that we then give ourselves license to do the worst thing for us. We're messed up. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. I mean, she's over, this is just not logical. She's a psychologist. I keep studying this thing, and we keep thinking, well, people must be logical at some point. No! It doesn't make any sense at all. We keep doing things that actually hurt us, and this irony is, and she says, look, you got to have some that goals that are more than just, I'm, I'm not going to be bad, and I'm going to be good. That doesn't, that doesn't work for us. When we moralize things, don't be bad, be good. Do this, don't do this. That's not enough. You have to have higher goals than just don't be bad. Christians, Adventists, we got to get, don't do these things. As long as we don't do these things or don't eat these things or don't do this on this day, all is going to be good. But that's not enough. That's not a goal. That's not something to long for. Don't do this. Do do this. That's legalism, that's moralism, and over and over and over and over and over again, it's shown that this doesn't work. I mean, the whole story of the Bible is evidence that this doesn't work. The Israelites, for hundreds of years in the Old Testament, operated under this, we don't do this, we do do this, and they kept having struggles with idols. I mean, obvious things, you're like, what? Because don't do this, do do this isn't enough. We're broken. We're illogical. We do things that we shouldn't do because we want to do them, even though they're going to hurt us ultimately. No wonder Jeremiah in, 17, in chapter 17, verse 9 of his book says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? I mean, McGonagall, she didn't quote, quote Jeremiah, but she could have. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand? Who can understand? It doesn't make any logical sense how we operate. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do, but what I hate, I do. And suddenly, Paul's advice at the beginning of the chapter in verse 3, it makes a whole lot of sense. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to. But rather, think of yourself with sober judgment. 
Be sober. Be sober. You think you've got it all together. You think you can get it all together. Not going to happen. We are desperately broken, and so what hope do we have? In Philippians chapter 2, we read these words. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, we're motivated by these weird desires that aren't healthy for us. And so we, we do things that are illogical and don't make sense, but ultimately they're really about self-fulfillment. But Jesus didn't act thinking of himself first. He humbled himself and became a servant and, and did something that, that for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. He didn't follow his own desires. He didn't hold on to the, the, the glorious nature of who he was. He was willing to submit. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1, we're told that Jesus, after he was uh, baptized, at the, at, the, at the opening time of his ministry, when everything should have been uh, glorious, I mean, he was baptized and we're told that God came down and, 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 and acknowledged in a special way his ministry. But what does he do? He doesn't start promoting himself. He goes out into the desert for 40 days. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting, that's not eating, for 40 days, he was hungry. See, Jesus submitted. Jesus did what we are incapable of doing. Because of this, we do have hope for a changed future. We have hope that our brokenness, that we try to fix by getting it together, by doing the good things and not doing the bad things, that that whole methodology is shattered. We have hope that God comes in and changes us and heals our brokenness and gives us the ability to discern what is indeed right and wrong, but not to just not do the bad and do the good. But to, to live holistic, healthy lives where we really have love for ourselves and love for each other. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, that's the problem. We need to be transformed. Our mind needs to be transformed because it doesn't... It doesn't make sense. It's illogical. It does things that hurt us because we want to do it now in the moment. Even when we assert what we want, we still have this brokenness and we end up doing things that hurt us. Romans 12, 2, the promise is God can transform your mind. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. The pattern of saying one thing and doing the other. That's the pattern of this world. I say I'm not going to be racist. I'm not going to be sexist. But in practice, I do it. Don't be conformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If only I knew what God's will was for my life. The promise here is as you are transformed, 
Don't be conformed. Be transformed. As you are transformed, God is able to change you and give you a new perspective and give you a new radar to what's right and what's wrong. And not only that, but how to live a healthy whole life. And then you can know what God's will is because you have that sense. All of this comes from God's work on our behalf because Jesus did what we cannot do. We can now take advantage of his work in our experience. Paul's benediction in his letter to the Ephesians says this, out of God's glorious riches, he can strengthen you with power through God's spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. This is God's invitation. It's not just a command, it's an invitation. God is capable of transforming us. God has the ability to work in our hearts and our minds to make us new, to renew us to help fix the brokenness that McGonagall has identified and, and others. Listen, McGonagall actually has some great insights for strengthening your willpower. But the reality is all of those insights ultimately are going to fall short when it comes to full transformation. Only as God works in us are we able to be completely like a newborn, a new life. And this is the promise of God's good news. He can make us like new. And so if you're here today and you've been struggling and you're wrestling, you've been on that moralizing journey where you're like, I'm not going to do bad things and I'm going to do good things. And, and day after day you wake up with a new set of things that you're not going to do and you're going to do, but you keep finding that it isn't working. There is hope that because of Jesus' work on our behalf, we can tap into that and that every day, the start of our day is not I'm going to do this and I'm not going to do this. The start is, help me, Jesus. Literally, help, help me, Jesus, because I actually don't know. And I say one thing and I do the other. And this transit, I mean, again, we talked about it last week. You know, in, in the churches, we tell you all kinds of things to do to be more spiritual, read more, come to services more, you know, pray more, all of that. The reality is those things aren't ultimately going to help unless we're calling on the name of Jesus. Jesus, help me. I mean, this, it sounds corny, it sounds simple, but this is the, the call of the gospel. God, I cannot do what you have done. Help me. Help me. You start there, God is able to work with us. He's not going to force himself on us. He's not into that. We open ourselves, God is able to enter and do what only he can do. New heart, new heart, new mind. Don't be conformed. Be transformed. May God work in us, you and me, in this community today to be transformed. Amen.